You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia and Finns fans? It's Joe Marino from the Locked On Bills podcast, joined by Kyle Krabs of the Locked On Dolphins podcast for a crossover Thursday preview of Bills Dolphins on Sunday, Halloween game on week seven. We thank you for making Locked On a part of your daily routine and your first listen for the Buffalo Bills or Miami Dolphins or any other teams that may tickle your fancy as well. And today's episode is brought to you by McDonald's. Proudly serving communities since 1965, McDonald's has always been more than just a place to get tasty, affordable food. It's an unofficial community center. A big thank you to our friends at McDonald's for always being there. We're loving it. We are not necessarily loving catching the bills off both losses that they've had this season uh, as Dolphins fans, Joe. And first and foremost, how did the bye week treat you? I know we, we've talked about this a little bit, but bye weeks are always a weird thing. It, usually most teams that go over to play to London also would have had a bye last week as well, but that, that did not materialize for, for the Dolphins. So um, how's things been going for you and Buffalo since the last time we spoke ahead of week two? Different football team now than we saw in week two or even week one where the Bills kind of kind of stumbled. Great. Awesome. Yeah. The thing about that 35 to nothing win is it felt very unsatisfying from a Bills perspective because how spoiled you are. Listen, it didn't include the Josh Allen performance we all want to see when the Bills have big wins. And so him not being a major catalyst for that win coming off of a disappointing game against Pittsburgh, it was kind of an unsettling feeling um, coming out of that game. As far as the bye week, man, it came early this year, and especially coming after after a loss to Tennessee like the Bills lost, it it was a long stretch without a game that you wanted to kind of put that that taste out of your mouth, and then you think back to last year where the Bills suffered the heartbreaking loss to Arizona going into the bye week. It's like, um, can we just have a good bye week for once here? <laughs> I know the Bills do quite well coming out of bye weeks under Coach McDermott, but nobody wants to go into the bye week with a loss. And, and Kyle, you mentioned the Dolphins playing in London against Jacksonville, coming back and immediately playing again against Atlanta. From my understanding, the Dolphins were given a choice there, right, to have their bye week then or not, and they chose to postpone it, if I understand correctly? Yeah, that's that's the understanding, which would fall in line uh, with everything else because it's seemingly every decision that they've made and, and bold bet on themselves uh, has imploded and fallen inward on itself this season. It was uh, the, the bet to trade as a part of the Waddle deal their pick to Philadelphia and keep San Francisco's pick, betting that they were going to be better than San Francisco. Well, San Francisco is two and four, and you've somehow managed to think two and five, and somehow you've managed to find a way to have a worse record than that. Uh, three game-winning field, three field goals on effectively the last play of the game for three losses for Miami this year. So they've been like painstakingly close. But the saying goes in uh, movie Any Given Sunday, life's just a game inches. So is football, and uh, Miami's been a, 
on the wrong end of probably eight to 10 game deciding plays in every single one of those narrow losses. Uh, so you, you, you kind of, they can't hurt me anymore, I think is the good news. And, and I said that to the Dolphins fans after uh, when we did the Monday, um, the Monday show after the Falcons game was like, I'm disappointed. Yeah. But like, I, I'm not emotional anymore because we did come into this season with expectations and, and hopes of closing the gap. Uh, but that that's one thing that as I look at these two teams, the biggest stark difference is, is Buffalo. They didn't just bring back players, right? Miami brought back a lot of players. Buffalo brought back all the coaches. Did, did Buffalo have a single coaching change this off season? Did Buffalo have a single coaching change this off season? And I think the answer to that is no, they, wow maybe move some people around to different positions and, and are they elevated like Ken Dorsey to passing game coordinator from Mm -hmm. quarterbacks coach stuff like that, but no different coaches. And um, there really wasn't any turnover the year before where the only thing that happened was at defensive line coach, um, the, you know, former Carolina Panthers defensive coordinator, Eric Washington, who worked with Sean McDermott in Carolina, he became available. And I think they said to their D line coach, Hey bud, there's another job that comes your way. You might want to take it. And he wound up being the D-line coach of Virginia Tech, right? Nobody's nobody's going to resign from an NFL D-line coach to go be the D-line coach of Virginia Tech. I think it was, hey, bud, uh, we're going to hire Eric Washington. He's going to be our D-line coach, and, you know, we wish you all the best. If you want to become the assistant D-line coach, maybe. But, uh, you know, if, if, if the Hokies want you, you should go take that job. So the Bills have been fortunate from a continuity perspective on the roster, on the coaching level and, and um, even in the front office where the Bills have had some really good personnel guys, they lost uh, Dan Morgan to be the assistant GM for the Carolina Panthers. But as much as we could celebrate that for now, you think if the Bills go where they should, looking at their schedule the rest of the way and the talent that they have, other teams are going to start plucking away. They're going to start pulling front office people. They're going to start pulling coaches, and the Bills won't be able to enjoy this continuity, you know, year over year. I think that's kind of what happens in the NFL. And I think when you go back to some teams, going back to that 2015 Carolina Panthers team, they weren't able to rebound from that. When they lost McDermott and they lost Brandon Bean, they they didn't they didn't replace those people. And they had a regime change. And so I think getting way, way ahead of ourselves and even an angle I didn't anticipate us getting into is that's going to be a big challenge for the Bills is if they do have the success that they're capable of having this year, how do they start to handle not having that continuity year over year? Right. And my question with that is like, does that give you as a Bills fan, like a renewed sense of urgency for this year? I'm sure you anticipated based off the way things went last year and Josh Allen's growth that you would see some attrition and that did not come. So it's like, you're, I don't want to say phrase it as like you're playing with house money, but it's like you never could have dreamed after the year you had last year, nobody was going to get plucked off your staff. And now, you know, you're steamrolling teams 35 to nothing or 40 to nothing like you did the Houston Texans and and firing on all cylinders. And I think you're top three in like every major offensive and defensive category as things currently stand. So, like, do you feel that as somebody who knows that there's always finite windows that exist? And it's not I mean, look at Kansas City. Right. And and Mm -hmm. how quickly that's turned on them. We were sitting here as dumb as it was before the Super Bowl last year is Patrick Mahomes. If Patrick Mahomes beats Tom Brady, will he get 10 Super Bowls? And like <laughs> all that dumb stuff that like 
you're seeing how hard it is for them. Yeah. Right. And you're in the thick of that window for yourselves now. You know, it's, it's a difficult balance to strike because on one hand, you understand that only one team gets to win the Super Bowl and 31 teams, their season ends in disappointment because you either don't make the playoffs, you lose in the playoffs, or you win the Super Bowl. Those are the only three things that can happen to you in the NFL. Only one team is happy when the season is over. And so trying to be reasonable and understanding that it's rare and, and um, I just don't ever really believe in that Super Bowl or bust type phrasing just because I think it's I don't think it's reasonable. There, it's it's single elimination playoff games, you know. Like it, it's not it's not like a best of five or best of seven. It's mm-hmm. it's it's football, man. And and that any given Sunday type thing is true. Like the best team doesn't win the Super Bowl every year. And so, trying to be mindful of that, and also just wanting the window to stay open as long as possible. I think that's kind of where I I subscribe a bit more is. Retain as much as you can year over year. You're obviously all in on Josh Allen and keep that window open for as long as possible when we're talking about football, a game that does have some randomness that is inevitably part of it. So striking that balance between the urgency to get it done this year, um, being aware that windows don't stay open as long as you want them to a lot of times, even even we perceive that um, following football for as long as we have, we know that it, it can change quick. You know, they say humility in the NFL is only a week away. Well, you know, so, so, so too are some of these windows that we see for teams. And so it's, it's a lot of stuff that you have to balance together. I don't think it's Super Bowl or bust. I want the window to stay open as long as possible, but I do feel the urgency. You know, I do feel that. Today's episode of a crossover Thursday between Locked on Bills and Locked on Dolphins is brought to you by McDonald's, proudly serving communities since 1965. McDonald's has always been more than just a place to get tasty, affordable food. It's a place where friends and family can come to reconnect, a place where classmates can meet up for a study group. Win or lose, it's a place where teammates, competitors, the home team, or the away team can come to recharge. So if you're up in, it's Orchard Park, right? Mm-hmm. And on Sunday after the game, you know, keep an eye out at McDonald's. You may see the home team or the away team coming in and, and recharging. Maybe you think they, they think anybody's getting McDonald's after the game? Let's, let's hope. What let's would hope. you What would you get? Oh, uh, breakfast. I go to McDonald's for breakfast. Bacon, egg, and cheese, egg McMuffin. That's that's where I'm. That's where I'm headed if I'm at McDonald's. It's a, a first round grade. Yeah, breakfast. No questions asked. So head to your local McDonald's and refuel and reconnect. Today's episode is brought to you by RockAuto.com, a family business serving do-it-yourselfers for over 20 years. With the ever-increasing numbers of makes and models, it's now impossible for your local chain auto parts store to stock all the parts you need. Why endure often pointless or seemingly intimidating questions like, is your Odyssey an LX or an EX? And wait while the person behind the counter orders the parts on their computer, choosing the only brand their warehouse happens to carry. You have computers with access to rockauto.com at home and right in your pocket. Save time and save money when using Rock Auto. Why would you choose to spend 30%, 50%, even 100% more for the same parts from a chain store or a car dealership? Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Make sure you write Locked On in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know that we sent you. They have amazing selection, reliably low prices, and all the parts your car will ever need over at rockauto.com. All right, Kyle, so I want to ask you some questions about this Miami Dolphins football team as uh, they get ready to play the Buffalo Bills on Sunday. And let's start with Tua, because Tua is 
arguably coming off of his best two games as a pro. I know the Dolphins were arguably. To, well, they, they weren't able to win the games. He had a couple of interceptions, but he's playing a lot better. And you said not arguably. It's, it's emphatically his best two games as a pro. So would like to know what are the differences that you've seen in Tua over the last couple of games since returning from injury? Yeah, I think you have to start with the offensive structure. Um, Seth Galino over Pro Football Focus did a great piece, at, and he effectively was suggesting, hey, Miami, take, take the training wheels off. Let, let's fully evaluate what you have in Tua. And what he meant by that is, I believe that the number is close to 50% of Tua Tungvalu's pass attempts this year are RPOs, play-action passes, and screens. So if you strip all that down, when it was Jacoby Brissett, that number was closer to 25%. And that included the Buffalo game in which Jacoby played everything except the first seven snaps. And it was very clearly a Tua tailored offensive game plan, right? You're down 21 nothing in the third quarter. You're running wide zone RPOs. Right? Jacoby's a quarterback. And that, that, that's what you installed that week. It's early in the season. You don't have a lot of other stuff to tap into. So you got to run it. Um, and then Dave Hyde who's down here in the Miami market had reported at the end of last week that Charlie Fry was actually the guy who was not just on the headset relaying the, the play call in, but actually had final say in calling plays for the first four weeks of the season. And Miami in regulation didn't go up over 300 yards in any of those four games. Well, they made a change going into week five. Uh, George Godsey reportedly, who was one of the two co-OCs, uh, took over in the headset and play calling duties in week five, they had 300 yards and I didn't even try to run the ball against Tampa Bay, which is smart based on the trenches advantage that the, that the bucks have. And in each of the last two weeks, they've gone up over 400 yards of total offense. And, you know, you can align that with Tua coming back. But I think the bigger story here is there's at least a little bit more rhythm to the offense with somebody who had called plays before, uh, who's in a more prominent role in, relaying and choosing what plays are called but this is still very much a max protect play action pass a lot of crossing routes intermediate areas of the field he's been very good uh 10 to 19 yards especially over the middle of the field uh, and that's been impressive and that's always a, a cause of concern for shorter quarterbacks right is it's how well do you see the intermediate areas of the field if you're within the pocket and he's doing a really great job of navigating the rush um, as far as hitting the top of his drop, understanding where his escape lanes are, moving up, sliding up in the pocket. Uh, he's not a super dynamic runner, but he is quick twitch uh, in short spaces, which is enough for him to break the pocket and make something out of nothing and make a guy miss. He juked Deion Jones out of his jock on Sunday. So there's some pretty bright flashes and, uh, he, he's certainly playing more aggressive. Uh, he, he's not getting a lot of vertical shots down the field, which is a shame because that's how the offense was supposed to be constructed to manufacture space everywhere else. But Mike Gusecki and him are, are firing on all cylinders right now too. And he, Mike's killing teams in the middle of the field. Like a million things I want to respond to there based on what you said, Kyle. Um, starting with Tua's pocket mobility, it's something that I felt like I noticed when I watched the Miami games the last couple of weeks, but then I saw a stat this week that Tua is sixth in the NFL in lowest percentage of pressured dropbacks that turn into sacks. Like he's doing a really nice job of navigating yeah. the pocket. Um, so I wanted to kind of 
add that to what you said, but from a question perspective, Jalen Waddle, he's on pace for over 100 catches. Mike Gusecki is on pace for nearly 1,000 yards. Those guys have really come on in recent weeks, especially Gusecki, who had some slower or less productive games earlier in the season, and he's obviously kind of changed the direction of his season. So I want to hear your thoughts about Waddle. I want to hear your thoughts about Gusecki. And then you mentioned the lack of vertical passing for this Dolphins offense. And in my research this week, I was surprised to learn just how little they were throwing the ball down the field, not doing it very frequently. It's not been very effective either. Tua's passer rating on deep deep throws is, is not ideal. How much of that do you think it is, though, the offensive line kind of having some struggles earlier in the season, and then, of course, not having Will Fuller, who is one of the best vertical threats in the game? Yeah, so I think it's it's kind of a combination of a number of things. I do think there have been some throws there was one uh, on Miami's, I think it was the opening script last week against Atlanta where they had faced cover one and they were just outside the red zone. So they, they were in the scoring area and uh, they did a max protect uh, play action shot and they kind of did the scissors concept with Gasecki running to the field and the free safety was over top of them with his hips open to the boundary. So the, the route was not capped, and Mike did have a, a step in, in separation. And Tua, on the play, rolled to his right. So he was rolling into space, into the field, and had an opportunity to potentially set his feet, trying to aggressively push the ball downfield and take that deeper shot. And I'm not going to nitpick him. He made a completion and ended up getting into the end zone. But I just – that's not been – an area of this offense where I think there's a high level of confidence that those plays are going to happen. Um, but the instances of like Tua passing that opportunity up for a cleaner projection, they have been few and far between. I would have loved to have seen him take that shot in that instance, but then you get to the end of the first half and they try and run a high low on the corner and in, in cover two and he tries to throw the corner to Durham Smythe, who lets the safety jump across his face, and the ball's intercepted in the final minute and a half of the first half, and you leave points on the board. Atlanta goes down, kicks a field goal, and then they get the ball to start half, and they score a touchdown. And it's like, all right, well, that, that's a potential 17-point swing. Mm -hmm. So I'm willing to live with it with how efficient two has been in the intermediate areas, but it's definitely – when the Dolphins chose not to draft a running back this past offseason, the discussion was, well, what we're going to do is we're going to use the speed of our vertical receivers to lift the coverage and create more spacing issues and manufacture lighter boxes. Without Will Fuller on the field, you're seeing teams that are playing a lot of too high safeties, and they're saying, we're going to give you the too high looks. Go ahead and try and run the ball. Let us know how it works out for you. And they ran for 132 yards this past weekend against Atlanta, and, but that was comfortably the most success that they've had running the football. So you're not – there's no respect that's commanded there for you to be able to use your speed to manufacture space, and that in turn is making it even harder to take those shots down the field. So at some point you got to say, my guy's even. I'm going to trust him to get over top of it and get outside the safety. I'm going to throw it anyway go make a play or you're just going to have to kind of live with the restrictions you've put on your own team 
at this point with the way you've tried to construct your roster. Uh, lastly, on the offense, would love your thoughts on Devontae Parker and his availability for Sunday. And then I guess this isn't really an offensive question. This is a special teams question. But with Jakeem Grant being traded, saw last week they got Holland, Javon Holland involved as a punt returner, Miles Gaskin as the kick returner. But, you know, Malcolm Brown's no longer available. And you figured Gaskin has a bit more on his plate in the offense. Holland, you know, big role to fill now with McCourty gone on defense. Do you think Jalen Waddell gets those return opportunities this week? Um, from a Bills perspective, I hope not because he's as dangerous as they come with the ball in his hands. But as I was speculating about this return situation, I, I couldn't help but think that in a game where they're, you know, I expect Miami to really come out with aggressive things, whether it's surprise onside kicks, fakes, trick plays, you know, Jalen Waddell being your return guy is kind of like a built in. Uh, trick play because he's so difficult to stop in space. So your thoughts on Parker's availability and Waddle potentially handling return duties this week? Yeah, I'm not counting on anything from Devontae Parker at this point. He hasn't played since his buddy Jakeem Grant got traded. Um, after the Colts game last year, it was his best friend on the team. Uh, practiced all week following the trade and, and has not dressed and has been a participant in practice on a limited basis and, and magically for like the fourth straight year has a hamstring issue and can't play. So I would bank on nothing for Devontae Parker. Um, as far as the return game goes, Holland involved in the punt return game for the first time last week, and he kind of flip-flopped him. Uh, he fair caught the first one, and he probably should have caught it. He had a lot of room to run, and then he didn't fair catch the second one when it was a little bit tighter. And, uh, but he did have a 16-yard punt return. Uh, I would expect he'll probably continue to be involved in the kicking game. Waddle has been involved. Um, after Jakeem got traded, uh, he's been on primary kick return duties, and I'm not sure what the thought process was to involve Miles Gaskin and get him involved in that. But as you said, uh, with Malcolm Brown being out, they just signed Duke Johnson um, this week to add to the running back room. So I doubt you'll see him. Maybe he gets an elevation. I'd be stunned. Um, but I would expect a lot of Waddle and Holland as your two guys in the return game from a kick and punt return basis. Uh, shifting gears to the defensive side of the football for Miami. I know it's been a disappointing year for the Dolphins, but I, I think I'm really just surprised by the defense and um, just just some struggles there. It, it, I, I expected a lot more. I'm sure you did as well. I'm sure the fans did as well. So your, your thoughts on this Dolphins defense What's gone wrong? And then maybe some bright spots that where, where the unit's playing above expectations. Yeah, I think they, they, they bid farewell to Shaq Lawson, who Bills fans are very familiar with. He wasn't familiar with the Patriots system, um, but they bid farewell to Kyle Van Noy and Bobby McCain and replaced those two guys with Jalen Phillips and uh, Javon Holland, so two rookies. And I think Miami is playing much simpler and more water, watered down on the defensive side of the ball. I'll tell you, and man, there's some times where, and I was just telling Dolphins fans about this on the Wednesday show, Atlanta comes out in three by one set, they're playing cover three zone and they don't adjust anything. So you got a deep safety or a deep third defender, a hook curl defender and a flat defender covering one receiver on an entire half of the field. And on the other side, you're, you're getting multiple vertical routes flooding against a single third defender, and there's nobody in the middle of the field. 
and it's like they're not making checks they're not lining up properly they're not changing the plays as needed and it's pretty alarming that you know they've been trying to water it down but then also like Jerome Baker got hurt last week and the Elan and Roberts played 70% of the snaps. And I don't know how much you're familiar with Elan and Roberts, but your eyes should light up every time you see him on the field on a passing play because he can't, he gives you no value at all. And he's trying to robot technique against Kyle Pitts running deep crossers or seam routes. And by the time Roberts gets his head turned around to find the crosser, Pitts has three yards of leverage over top of him because he's just that lethargic. And then you compound that with he's a guy who's leading the league in missed tackle attempts. Um, they let Bernardrick McKinney go to bring him back. And it, that falls back in line with what we said at the top of the show. Every bet and gamble that this Dolphins team made on themselves, it's fallen flat. And they bet real hard. They brought in Bernardrick McKinney. We thought at the time it was to help improve the run defense. He was literally just Elan and Roberts insurance because they restructured his contract. They cut him down to a one-year deal and then they cut him and they owed him no money. And they did that after Elan and Roberts was activated off the PUP and was shown that he was going to be healthy and ready to go for the start of the season. He's, he's got no value in space um, and he's not making plays between the tackles and instances like that. Like I think Andrew Van Ginkle, is another guy who's stepped into a, a larger role with the departure of both Lawson and Van Noy. And they're asking him to do a lot of zone drops and he he's missing stuff coming right across his face. And he's dropping vertically when there's a guy out in the flat and he's got flat responsibility. He's like, he's totally oblivious to the fact that he's there. So there's some guys who I think they bet really hard on. We're going to either return to form in the case of Roberts or we're going to make a major leap. And then they kind of overlooked the impact of losing experienced guys within the system. And it's just been a, a nightmare scenario in every way, shape and form. Last thing I have for you, Kyle, is that, you know, entering this game, there are a lot of big picture distractions for the Miami dolphins. And mm -hmm. I just, I, you can't escape them, whether it's the commitment to Tua, Deshaun Watson rumors, Brian Flores, very quickly becoming a hot seat type coach. You can't ignore this stuff. But meanwhile, we got a game to play on Sunday against the Bills team coming off a bye, coming off a heartbreaking loss to the Titans. And so as you consider your prevailing thoughts for Sunday's game, I'd like to know what's on your mind. I think this is the most important game of the Tua Tungvaloa evaluation. Obviously, this is the best team in the division. And this is a team that beats you 35 to nothing. And your offensive game plan that you catered to your quarterback strength was punched directly in the face by the Buffalo Bills the last time you played. Unfortunately, Jesse Davis is still at right tackle. Why? I don't know. But he's still there. So you're going to have some of those same protection issues. Now, you did take Austin Jackson and move him from left tackle inside to left guard. So thankfully, mercifully, we may have seen the last of the A.J. Epinesa versus Austin Jackson saga that goes all the way back to when they played each other. And I think the Holiday Bowl and Epinesa tagged him for four sacks in that game. Um, but you saw what the game plan looked like and how overwhelmed Miami was offensively in their first two possessions when two was a quarterback against Buffalo. And we obviously saw what happened in week 17 of last year. Tua, he got a couple games on the field 
to build your confidence at least. And I understand that the noise in the background is continuing to happen, but I want to see what the game plan looks like. And I want to see how he executes that because until Tua Tungvalo is not the quarterback of the Miami Dolphins, he is the quarterback of the Miami Dolphins. And this entire evaluate, this entire season for us has become evaluating what pieces have been brought in which ones we think can continue to work, which ones we think are universal and can work with multiple other schemes. Because I'll say this, the only thing I'll say about the Deshaun Watson rumors is this. If we get past the trade deadline and the deal doesn't happen, you have to fire everybody. Because you cannot have played psychological warfare with your second-year quarterback for 10 months to let this thing go by and then get to the offseason, which is going to start in January, and not be able to trade for said quarterback for another two months at the risk of other teams coming in, pending whatever legal situation is going to unfold with Deshaun Watson, and potentially not secure Deshaun Watson, but say, well, we're going to keep the GM and we're going to keep the head coach because that's our plan for March when that's not guaranteed, and then spend two months in offseason limbo where you just took this quarterback and drug him through the mud and played psychological warfare with him. And pretend like it didn't happen. Because what happens if you don't, don't get Deshaun Watson? And you have to, but you remain committed to the guys who you know are going to execute the trade as the owner of the team that you want to see happen. That can't happen. So I think for Tua, this is a really good opportunity for him to evaluate where he's come from versus where he was just a couple weeks ago. I think the offensive system will be a little different to help that. But that execution is going to be a big part of this evaluation window for him. It's that awesome time of year where all of the major sports are in session. The NHL season, the NBA season, both just got started. The World Series is happening in baseball. NFL and college football are at the midway point. And betonline.ag remains your number one spot to bet on sports this season. Head to their new updated website and sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit when you use our promo code Locked On From basketball, football, baseball, NHL, boxing, UFC, they even have Vegas casino games. Don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports, and BetOnline is where the game starts. Have you ever tried to scoop that last bit of salsa out of a bowl and right at the last pivotal moment, the chip breaks, the chip disappears into the salsa, your hand plunges deeper into the bowl, and you're left with the dreaded salsa knuckles. When you're stressing about whether or not we should go for it on fourth down, it's the last thing you need. Well, I have a solution for you. Zach's Mighty Tortilla Chips know that the purpose of a tortilla chip is to successfully deliver dips from the bowl to your mouth in one delicious piece. Their chips are sturdy, corny, and live to keep your knuckles clean. That's because their chips are cut and fried from real tortillas, while most chips on the shelf skip this step. On top of that, their delicious flint corn is organically grown in the Buffalo, Rochester area. So pick up a bag at your local Wegmans or Whole Foods Market and say no to weak and crappy tortilla chips forever. So we are back here. On the crossover Thursday edition of Locked on Bills and Locked on Dolphins. And Joe, the, the first thing that I wanted to ask you actually didn't come to me until we were in the opening segment. And you referred to the Carolina Panthers. And what happened when 
they had Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean hired away from them. And they could never replace those people. And the organization fell off. And then I think about how the Dolphins, because with all due respect, I'm not going to sit here and toot your horn for the next 10 minutes. You guys know how good you are, right? <laughs> I think about how the Dolphins have pursued hiring coaches the entire Stephen Ross tenure in which it was, we are going to go after Joe Philbin because he worked with Aaron Rodgers. And then we're going to go after Adam Gase because he worked with Pate Manning. And then we're going to go after Brian Flores because he worked with Bill Belichick. So from a big picture perspective and a hiring perspective, do you have any insight on how Buffalo knew, or did they just get fortunate that those were the components of that successful organization that made them success. Like how do you avoid hiring the wrong pieces and bring them in and ask them to replicate something that exists somewhere else, but you brought in the wrong piece because they weren't the reason why that was what it was. Man, it's a good question. Um, And I guess what's interesting about considering this from the bills angle is Terry and Kim Pagula, the owners of the bills that make these decisions they also own the Buffalo Sabres, and <laughs> they've owned the Sabres for longer than the Bills, and that has been a very embarrassing situation when it comes to finding the right leadership from both a GM and head coach perspective. I mean, it's it's whatever you think has been the worst thing that's happened in the NFL, I promise the Buffalo Sabres have been worse from the hockey perspective, and that's under the care of Terry and Kim Pagula. Now you look at the football operation, and the first coach that they hired – was Rex Ryan, and this came after Doug Marone um, opted out of his contract and quit on the job, and the Bills were suddenly left with new owners and the need to find a new head coach. They hired Rex Ryan. So we always have. I always have to remind myself that the Pagulas who hired Sean McDermott showed that they're capable of hiring people like Rex Ryan and failing over and over and over again to find the right leadership for their hockey team. So they hire Sean McDermott, and, and part of that's probably some luck because the finalist for the job, it was like Hugh Jackson. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Hugh Jackson thought he had the job, man. So he, and it, it, people like that, Vance Joseph was was among the candidates. It was, a lot of guys that didn't work out were, were in the running to be the, the Bills head coach. But I think where Sean McDermott really won the Pagulas over and I think really set set the Bills on the right direction with you know Brandon Bean being hired a few years or a few months later and then the team being what it is now Sean McDermott came in and and he's a very thorough attention to detail type guy and you know he, there's all these reports about him having this notebook that he started 20 years ago when he became into the NFL and took notes on everything and just is just ridiculously prepared for every scenario and has notes and comments on all of this and he just probably Probably from seeing Rex Ryan and, and his lack of attention to detail and, and a guy that um, couldn't be more different than Sean McDermott, kind of seeing that polar opposite and just buying into that complete opposite direction on top of looking at the success that he's had in Carolina and saying, yeah, this is the guy that we want to be the leader and CEO of our operation moving forward. And so I almost feel like all of those failures from the Sabres and Rex Ryan gave them the right perspective in what they're looking for to go in a completely different direction with McDermott. And um, it's obviously worked out. 
what is the thing about Sean McDermott that most you would most identify has made him such a successful head coach? Yeah, I think he. Lo- I think he. He's. It's the culture that he's created on a foundation of love. Weird word to say, right? About football, right? Love. But the Bills players legitimately have tight bonds, and they're not afraid to say that they love each other. And I think when you when you foster that type of environment, you have a situation where everybody wants to be the best version of themselves, not just for themselves, but because they want to be accountable to other people. And the Bills are a tight-knit group. I mean, their families are always hanging out. Their wives are always hanging out. Um, and they care about each other. And so it's, it's as much playing for yourself in your own career as it is embracing being part of the Buffalo Bills. And I think they've been very, very choosy with the people that they bring into the the organization from a coaching and players perspective, and they're all wired a very similar way. And the bills have some, some curious ways about going through that, that process of identifying who they want to be as part of the operation. But I think they've done a really good job of being choosy and being selective about the people that will buy into this culture where you care about everybody. And the ownership has backed it up by giving them you know, state of the art facilities. They just opened their new training complex and it's, you know, re- really highly regarded by so many people about what's available for the players um, to help them with recovery and injury prevention. And I think that you look at the Bills injury situation under McDermott, it's been really, really good. And I just think it's all of these things working together to try to create this atmosphere that people want to be part of and they can come and be the best version of themselves. And they're part of this bond and commitment as a team uh, to play for each other. And And it starts with I think McDermott's messaging and how he's cultivated that type of environment. So it's, I don't know that it's necessarily X's and O's or scheme or talent. I think it goes back to those roots of culture and, and loving each other and caring a lot about each other and trying to be successful together. So what's, what's interesting about that is, is a lot of those same things, Dolphins fans were under the impression that Brian Flores was, was teaching with you know, the things that were said and you saw how he defended his players. You go back to the Cincinnati game last year when they took like their eight cheap shots on Jakeem Grant in the return game and like really ugly stuff. And Flores is storming across the field and he's telling off the Bengals coaching staff. And like you get fired up because you see a guy that's got a passion mm-hmm. about your coach. But uh, what what we've seen since is, is kind of some attrition. You know, Marion Hobby, defensive line coach, left to take the exact same job somewhere else this offseason. And that's not the first time that this has happened with this staff. So it was kind of a red flag that uh, perhaps that the culture that's been instilled in, in Miami hasn't been what we thought it was on the surface level. And a lot of that is because Bill Brian Flores is somebody off the Bill Belichick tree, right? Like yeah. they're, they're what's said and what's told the message is, is very uniform by design. Uh, but it's not a super media-friendly environment to have transparency with, with what is going on with the team. So my next question for you from this, how Buffalo has, has built this uh, really successful organization is how have the Bills balanced finding the right people to buy into the culture with the talent aspect? Because I know there's been a, a number of personal conversations that you and I have had talking about players on the team who you just know Sean McDermott loves, right? And like, they're going to continue to have opportunities and maybe you have a chance to get a more physically impressive player in a certain spot. But if that player doesn't fit 
the culture that's been instilled. How has Buffalo navigated that? I mean, especially when you compare it to some of the other teams across the league, like say Tampa Bay with bringing in Antonio Brown and all of his personal issues, let's just call them, that he's dealt with over the last two years? That's a hard question to answer. Um, And as much as I like to say that the Bills want Boy Scouts, you've even heard Sean McDermott say that, you know, we're not trying to to build a, a, a team of what are the choir boys or, or whatever, whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's a difficult needle to thread, man. Um, talent and people that are ri- wired the right way. And, and the bills have made some concessions with some positions in my mind, because they like the person that's in that spot where it feels like it's upgradable. And Bills fans know I'm talking about Levi Wallace right now. <laughs> that's that's the player that <laughs> I wasn't going to say any names. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, Levi Wallace is one of those players, um, but there's others as well. Um, I, I just feel like that they are selective, and and so they vet these players out. Um, they rely a lot on relationships for for different people that they bring in. I, I consider a guy like Mitch Morse. When the Bills signed him, they made him the highest paid center in league history. And, you know, there was that relationship with Andy Reid and Andy Reid and Sean McDermott go back to to one another from their time in Philadelphia. And so I think it's I think it's valuing those relationships to get the right read on players. Um, it's having a a personnel staff that has come from different places and you know, you kind of tap into to that firsthand account and information for players. I mean, a lot of the guys that I consider that the Bills are brought in, whether that's Jordan Poyer, who uh, one of the Bills coaches had him in Cleveland and kind of had a glimpse at uh, how he was wired or, or just a lot of examples like that. But John Feliciano, he was with Bobby Johnson, who's the Bills O-line coach when he was the assistant O-line coach with the Raiders and understood how he was wired and now he would fit into the the operation. And so I think there's just a lot of examples of that and then thorough vetting anytime that they make a draft pick or, or can consider giving free agent dollars to somebody or trading for somebody that they rely on that Intel to make sure that it's going to fit. It's going to be a fit, not just from a skill level, but to be introduced to the culture and locker room and um, be able to, to be accepted. And, and I think the bills, whether it's Steph Diggs or Emmanuel Sanders or Mitchell Trubisky or whoever they brought in, they seem to just kind of fit in. And when they don't, the bills move on. I mean, Quentin Spain, is a player that came in, had a really good first season with the Bills, signed a contract extension, and then was cut very shortly into that contract extension because I think there was some disconnect in terms of how he handled the extension and assumed that he was going to be a starter. And they said, hey, you're not our guy anymore. Like You're not wired the right way. The fact that you think that this is your job because you signed an extension and you're not going to do X, Y, and Z and have the right mindset and prepare like we expect you to, you're not a fit anymore. You got to go. And so I think they've... I think they've navigated that quite well. And it's a it's kind of a long answer to a tricky question, but that's just my thoughts on what you presented there. So what happened against Tennessee? Well, <laughs> Buffalo, I mean, you came yeah. in 35 nothing, 43-21, 40 to nothing, 38 to 20, including win over Kansas City in Kansas City, going into the Tennessee game. How did this end up being a three-point loss uh, to the Titans? Yeah, I think the Bills missed their opportunity to to pounce early and, and score touchdowns in the red zone. The Bills' red zone offense has not been good this year. I think statistically you'll see really good stuff. Across the, yeah, that really good across the board, this football team, except for that red zone offense. And when they settled for two field goals less than 30 yards on their first two possessions, 
to be up six nothing instead of fourteen to nothing. That that created that opportunity for the Titans to continue with their script of we're going to pound Derrick Henry and we're going to try to be opportunistic on defense. And um, the Bills fell right into their script. And so when they didn't get that lead, and the next thing you know, Derrick Henry rips off a seventy-six yard touchdown, and it's you score you you know you feel like you were the better team. You force them to punt, punt, and intercept in the first quarter. All of a sudden, the second quarter starts, and you feel like you outplayed them, but now you're losing seven to six on one play. You know, I mean, that's that's the NFL. And so um, the Bills' red zone offense let them down in that football game. And it's those first two drives, and then of course it's the last drive where the Bills didn't convert on that fourth and one. Uh, to give them a fresh set of downs and try to win the game in regulation. So uh, red zone offense continued to be an issue for the Bills. And then defensively, they they kind of fell apart over the last three quarters of that game. And the Bills have been outstanding on defense all season long. And then the last three quarters of the game, you saw them start to start to wilt a bit. And that really was – Derrick Henry was the catalyst. And whether it was ripping off some longer runs, but it's just his presence and how the Bills – the Bills dealt with it was kind of being committed to playing downhill and stopping the run, which created some some passing lanes behind them because you have you have this this idea of you're going to ask your second level defenders to play downhill and then recover against the pass. And Tennessee's pass protection held up, and Tannehill hit some crossers to AJ Brown behind the Bills linebackers, and so they used that run to set up the pass in a very effective way. And uh, the Bills the Bills did not stop Tennessee over the last three quarters of the game. They they scored a touchdown or a field goal on every single possession except for before the half. And so your defense wasn't getting stops. You didn't score in the red zone early on. You have a, a player like Derrick Henry that can can dictate a game if you allow Tennessee to stay in it. And they they wound up uh they wound up winning. Last question for you. Um you know obviously the, the last three quarters against Tennessee defensively was not the standard that that Buffalo has set thus far this season. Uh, they started the year with four consecutive games of less than 300 yards of offense allowed. And obviously one of those involved quarterback change for Miami, but that also included 106 yards allowed in six first downs to the Houston Texans. And uh, more importantly, 15 turnovers in four games against the Dolphins, Washington football team, Houston Texans, and Kansas City Chiefs in a four-game stretch. What has been the biggest driver of that success in creating turnovers with the bills, number one in the NFL and turnovers forced at this point in time and a touchdown to interception ratio against them thus far through six games of five touchdown passes to 10 interceptions. I think it's a testament to the, to the continuity of the defense where your back seven, your linebackers, corners and safeties, they've been together every single starter since 2018, most of them since 2017. There's not a route combination they haven't seen. There's not an offensive attack they haven't seen. So from a communications perspective, experience, time on task, same coaches. I mean, imagine. Like, I mean, (laughs) you and I have been doing podcasts together for a long, long time. We've got Mm -hmm. a lot of reps and time on task. We can show up and and talk about anything and do a podcast and we'll we'll, we'll be fine. That's a weird comparison, but like apply that to a, a back seven where everything's been the same for however many years now, four or five years. On top of that, you've improved your defensive line by bringing in Greg Rousseau and Boogie Basham, having Star Latutelay back after opting out, uh, some growth from A.J. Epinesa to go with veterans like Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison and uh, what Ed Oliver brings to the penetration-style player. So you have your, your defensive line normalized. They're, they're a group that rotates a ton. They, they dress nine every Sunday. They play them all. 
So you have this fresh defensive line that you have stabilized with an experienced back seven and you know the benefit of playing some some offenses that certainly aren't among the best in the NFL or close to it. You have a recipe for some takeaways and limiting yards and points. Really appreciate the insight on the key cogs of the Buffalo Bills and uh, also a little bit of insight on this Sunday's game between the Buffalo Bills and the Miami Dolphins. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed this crossover Thursday edition. Get a chance to share the mic with Joe twice a year uh, on the crossover here with Locked On in addition to our efforts over at Draft Dudes. Uh, so hope you guys enjoyed. Kyle Krabs, Joe Marino, Locked On Bills, Locked On Dolphins. Enjoy the rest of your day. Hope to talk to you guys. Hope you guys enjoy the weekend of football that is ahead. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening, and keep it locked in right here on the Locked On Podcast Network.